Hi, welcome to our weekly podcast, Code Monkey Talks, about things that interest technologists. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brian Jackson, and joining me is Brian Demers. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's been a busy week. <laughs> yes, uh, same here. Uh, also joining us this week is our guest, Mitchell Hashimoto of HashiCorp. Hello. Hi, welcome. Hey. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to talk to you. Um, uh, so the basic breakdown of our show is that there's three segments. Uh, the first is uh, in the news where we'll discuss current events. Uh, then uh, we'll dive deeper into an interview with uh, Mitchell. And then after that, we've got uh, something to do for our listeners. So uh, with that, uh, let's begin. So our first segment's about current events, and we call it in the news. Uh, we each pick uh, one news story uh, that we've read about recently uh, that we'd like to discuss. Um, also, if there's something that uh, you know you want us to discuss, please feel free to email us at feedback at codemonkey.fm or post it on our subreddit, codemonkeytalks.reddit.com. So, Brian, why don't you go first? What's your news item? All right, so this week mine is a little less than a news uh, item, but it was a recent blog post that I read. Um, I'm going to admit it was probably due to a little selection bias on my part, um, but it's been something I've been thinking about sort of in the back of my head for the last few weeks anyway, for, you know, random thoughts, uh, and it's the whole topic of is code art? Hmm. So before I give you my uh, sort of answer, I'm going to throw it to you guys. So it's a little little different this week, but we'll see yeah. how it goes. Yeah, M Mitchell, what's your thoughts? Sure. I actually, this is funny because I um, recently gave uh, a short guest lecture at the University of Washington, which is my uh, where I graduated from, and uh, this was something I talked about, which was that um, I believe it is basically is is that if you look at the sort of philosopher's definition of art, uh, which I agree with, uh, you know, art is something that is made to um, uh, evoke emotion in somebody. You know, it could be positive, it could be negative, uh, but that's sort of like the, the philosopher's definition, I guess. And I think that people get emotional from software, and that alone doesn't make it art, but I think if you understand that people get emotional and you try to design software um, that evokes certain emotions, then... It is a piece of art, and I think that you know that's something I try to do. Is I try to make software um, enjoyable, not in the sense that it works, but also in the sense that you kind of are excited to use it. And I consider that practice of how to do that uh, more of an art. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I think my take on it is is similarly that uh, you know I think of it as it's a real craft. Uh, you know, I think there's a science to it, and then there's the craftsmanship uh, aspect of, of code, and um, whether it's at, like, the, the line-by-line -line level or if we're talking about software architecture and design, um, there's a lot of parallels to kind of some very ancient um, traditions and uh, industries. Uh, I, I try to correlate it to construction and and um, a lot of the disciplines of of. Uh, things that are like um, civil engineering and whatnot. Uh, a lot of times it seems like we're a very young industry. And so trying to find how other industries have kind of taken the engineering and the art um, and applied them is, is something that I'm always kind of searching for. So uh, yeah. definitely the code side of it is, is definitely art. Yeah. I mean, I think as, as sort of an employer now, it's been really fascinating, um, 
you know, we're up to like 50-ish engineers. It's been really fascinating to find people that are like really, really uh, talented and sort of brilliant um, engineers in the sense of the solutions they come up with and the technology choices and things like that. And yet, um, you know, won't name any names, of course, but like yet, you know, may completely sort of be missing the craft part of it. And so, mm. you know, they build something that works, but it's it's sort of a bear to use. Um, and then on the flip side, there's there's people I know that are uh, care very much about the craft, but, you know, how they make it work may be subpar. And so it's been kind of interesting to figure that out. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a really important balance. Yeah, so so my answer, so it's a little little different, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely now rethinking myself after hearing Mitchell. Um, so I would say it's not. Um, and it's not, it's not that I, th- I think there is the craft portion of it. So that's the, the process of making software, like that craftsmanship, um, right. you know, the passion, all of that. I, I wouldn't say that is not art. So that's a double negative there. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if the output is art, but, um, and, and that, and that's based on just, just, you know, random thinking, like, you know, it's, it's built more for function than, than, than pleasure. But, uh, the emotion piece alone, I'm definitely going to have to rethink this because um, code definitely invokes emotion, mm-hmm. whether it's like a, uh, a what the F moment, yeah, you know? That's, uh, that's what I was going to call you on. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Right? So so that alone, um, I may change my mind. Um, now now it's going to be back in the back of my head uh, for the next couple of weeks. So thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, a part of it is too, is like who's the audience, right? And sometimes, yep. you know, as a a developer admiring other, you know, the craft of other developers, like, you know, some, some stuff can be very artistic, whether it's the code itself and how it's structured or the user interfaces, you know, of, of whether it's, um, you know, even just, we're talking about like a CLI tool, you know, um, uh, can evoke emotions. So. Yes. Yes. So, so if we, if we take some of that emotion out, which, which I don't think you can separate emotion from art. I mean, I think those are very coupled, but, um, just thinking about the, the form and, and function and, and, you know, the sort of the output of what you're trying to do. Um, like if you're, if you're crunching numbers, right. I think that's probably less art, but if, if you're interacting with somebody, whether it's, um, a command line tool, uh, even, even an API, uh, then, then I guess, I guess that might be. So, hmm. well, I, I, I was ready to argue this until, until you mentioned that. And then, you know, I've been going through like the, the code, the coder highs and lows the past couple of days. So I've been like super excited <laughs> and like, you know, then, then super depressed afterwards. So, all right. This was good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, was, that was a really interesting <laughs> topic. Uh, Mitchell, did, is there something that uh, you wanted to talk about this week? Um, yeah, so the thing I kind of wanted to talk about was, you know, it's, it's not news. Um, uh, well, kind of. So there, there's, there's sort of the piece of, uh, enterprising, uh, open source software, which I think is interesting is that, you know, the news aspect, and, and I promise you this is not a pitch. I'm not trying to. Is basically, you know, we've been, uh, focusing as a company on shipping a lot of enterprise value in the first quarter this year. Um, and I think we've done that. And uh, it's been interesting um, to just think about sort of how an open source project uh, does that and like what are people comfortable with and um, what doesn't belong there and how do you mm. communicate it? Interesting. Yeah. And so um, that's the thing that I've always 
struggled with or, or you know, tried to figure out is when you've got an open source project and your uh, your consumers are potentially closed sourced, you know, uh, consumers uh, like large enterprises, potentially. I mean, the industry is changing and there are large enterprises that are are big contributors back to open source. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking traditional and, and folks that are, are still kind of adjusting to the times. Uh, you know, how, how do you how do you take that um, approach so that you're able to take the the feedback that they're giving you uh, privately and and make sure that that turns into something that you can share publicly um, yeah it's a, tell me more yeah so I mean there's so there was a couple interesting things that happened for us this quarter um, so one is is an example of where we took something that was previously enterprise and made it open source so um, with Terraform uh, which is our infrastructure management tool, mm-hmm. um, we pulled out state locking, which is um, something, uh, basically, uh, the ability, the protection that two people aren't modifying infrastructure at the same time. Yeah. Um, we took that out of enterprise and made it open source, and, and it made a lot of confusion from some people that were like, why why did you do this? And, yes. uh, and things like that. And then the flip side is that, you know, we shipped... Um, two major releases of Vault this quarter, um, lots of open source goodness in there, but also lots of enterprise goodness. And and we haven't gotten any negative feedback, actually. We've gotten mostly excitement, but, um, you know, it's been interesting as a company um, where we've been building pure sort of open source for so long, mm. um, making that transition and seeing how the community reacts has been uh, has been really interesting. Yeah, that's interesting to, to hear, I mean, because... You have this this problem of user experience, and where the users are, the engineers, of making sure that it's still simple and easy to grok what this tool does and how to start and where I'm using it. But then introducing these enterprise level uh, features, things that that the the team of one is not necessarily going to be needing yeah. uh, without confusing the sauce and and making it like I don't understand this tool. I can't, you know. I, the five the five minute tutorial doesn't make any sense to me, right? <laughs> yeah, um, and, and I mean we've been like you know the thing I try to push really hard is that you know there shouldn't be a point. The worst feeling to me is as a consumer of software in general, not like even infrastructure software or anything, is like is when I'm using software and I feel like suddenly I need to pay for it to be useful. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, that's not always. I'm not always sad about that. If it's clearly consumer software, I'm like, okay, this is fair. Um, but when it's like, when it's sort of marketed as open source software, that's where I get annoyed. So, um, you know, we've been trying to strike that balance, which is that you could be super, super successful with our software at a at a pretty, you know, decent size, and we don't artificially limit like, you know, number data in there or anything like that. Um, but you know, when you look at the enterprise stuff, at a certain point, you think, yeah, okay, that feels pretty nice. So I'll give you like an example, I guess. Um, and again, not, not, not trying to be a pitch, just trying to like think about it because I never had to think about it before. Sure. Um, is uh, in, in Vault Enterprise, one of the features is replication. So um, with Vault, you could store secrets. Um, you could store, you know, you could have standbys for forever. You could, have, you could be highly available for free. Um, and we have customers out there with, well, users out there, I guess, in this case, um, with very large scale doing that. Um, and we just had one reach out, for example, that was like, we love Vault. We've been using Vault. Um, we took a look at Enterprise and saw it has replication and and talked about it and thought, yeah, 
yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of what it turned into. But it's not like they saw it and were like, yeah, we, we just can't survive without that feature. Um, right. Yeah. Right. I think it's you grow and mature into those. Like, I, I like that model of, uh, you know, I think adoption within a company just starts with the, let me use this free tool. I don't have to, like, outside of asking permission from my, my, being my boss or something like that of like, hey, can we even start playing with this? Um, without having to, like, get legal and finance involved, uh, to, to get some purchase order set up for some tool that we're not even sure we're even going to use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for the, the quote unquote, you know, little guy, the guy who, who's starting this idea, it's much easier to be able to grab it, start playing with it, and then organically grassroots have that grow within an organization to the level that then it's like, okay, we need to start paying these guys because there's either support or additional features that uh, now that we our maturity level has gotten to a level where we, we, we need this stuff. Um, I like that kind of curve to uh, adoption you know, versus the the more traditional, like, you know, we, let's have a, you know, a call with the sales team. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, so I was in a, uh, working in a shop and we had, you know, an open source version and we had an enterprise version. So it was much the same types of, you know, balances. So in one hand, right, you have to make the open source product good enough that everybody wants to use it, right? And then you have to, you know, provide this freemium type of product that not everyone needs, but these features are super handy, right? Like replication, um, I- anything like that. Um, and it's always this balance of, of, um, features that, that you have to weigh out of, you know, should this be an open source? Should this be in closed source? And I think it's harder to do that with a full product type of thing than it is like a library. It's pretty easy to make a library open source, you know, contributions. Like it's, uh, you interact with it programmatically, you know, as opposed to a full on product or, um, you know, a product that may have enterprise functional functionality added onto it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really interesting topic. Thanks for uh, bringing it up, Mitchell. Um, so uh, what I wanted to talk about was uh, this week, the uh, AWS had the AWS Summit in San Francisco. And one of the things that they announced, I think it was just today, was AWS CodeStar, which looks to be a kind of collection of a lot of the continuous delivery um, components and services of AWS into a uh, yet another service. Uh, You know, I'm not really sure how to describe it, but it's the collection of uh, code commit and code build and code pipeline and code deploy into kind of a WYSIWYG point and click uh, you know, here's a selection of different languages, code languages that, um, you know, and frameworks that we support um, get started really easily. Uh, and you might have somebody who's kind of like a code star master at your organization, like a.k.a. the the DevOps guy or the build uh, guy who would allow people to give permissions to people to, like, create a new project. And then that... Uh, captures all of like the C, the IMA, like security policies and everything so that the team can now have a continuous delivery pipeline, uh, in AWS. Uh, it's interesting. I think there's four regions that they're supporting out of the box. Jira integration is in the box, is part of the box. So like, you know, it's a, a, basically a, um, a point and click 
bootstrap your, you know, or incept your application um, from the beginning, uh, including, uh, you know, your your continuous delivery pipeline, as well as like your issue tracking. Uh, really interesting. Uh, it seems definitely like it's it's yet another way that a- AWS, you know, is is layering their services together, you know, because in the end, like all of this is built on, you know, EC2 and or, you know, Beanstalk. Um, and so it seems very intriguing from a small shop perspective, but even from um from kind of within a large shop, if you've got AWS uh, adoption, you might want to have new projects start on a platform like this. You know, it's the kind of thing that through my, throughout my career, I've been trying to build something like this and um, internalize things like this. And there's a lot of competing things on the, uh, you know, on the, um, uh, you know, out there to, to kind of do the same thing. But if you're already deep into the AWS in, uh, ecosystem, it seems like an interesting uh uh, option. So wow, th- this is really cool, especially the the uh, the Jira integration. So yeah, uh, I mean I've worked at a lot of shops that have used Jira. Um, it's it's kind of weird. I think along in the Java side of things, um, a lot of Java shops have used Jira. Mm-hmm. And then I talk to other people, and then you know that's pretty common. Atlassian is a big Java shop, right? Um, but they have their own. I mean, they have all these types of tools like themselves, right? So right. in a way, they're a competitor. So it's really interesting to see. Uh, integration with that out of the box yeah yeah it's almost like you know aws was like oh we need issue tracking well, we don't have our own service you know there's no aws issues service <laughs> right. yet so what's the next best thing let's integrate jira yeah I, I think it's pretty cool um i mean aws has been constantly sort of moving up the stack and and trying to do more and more and it makes sense because they're you know building sort of the foundational layers um they need to do that so um, I think it's cool. Uh, my sort of bias, uh, you know, being from HashiCorp is yeah. basically that um, I think it's useful, but I also think that you'll use other cloud platforms too. Yes. Um, so I don't, but I, like some people are taking the approach, I've been, I've been, you know, reading comments about it, things like that. Some people are taking the approach that like it's sort of completely useless in like a Kubernetes world or something like that. Um, and I don't, I, I don't know sure. what has led me to this, but I mean, I sort of like, I view something like this and I, you know, I guess I spend most of my days talking to extremely large companies. Um, and I'm just like, there's just no way that this plus Kubernetes won't exist. Like, you know, when you're a big enough company, you end up somehow running everything. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm surprised that they don't have ECS, um, support out of the box, for instance. You know, I'm not uh, surprised by that, but, uh, yeah. but it should. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like, I, I, that's only inevitable that that will come, mm-hmm. that it's going to be a, you know, part of this pipeline is building, you know, Docker images into an ECS registry and deploying it out to ECS clusters as task defs. And, um, you know, yeah, just... I mean, I'm kind of surprised that, and I mean, I say this, with saying and pretty much being like, I, I haven't really helped at all either, but like, I'm kind of surprised that years later, um, Heroku still hasn't been, uh, really easily reproduced by a cloud vendor. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, they, they have like close, like some people, like they have platforms in a way, but just the model of like, you know, Git push and, and right. simple apps and cheap apps. Um, you know, I'm just really surprised. Like, you know, AWS has a beanstalk and stuff, but it launches like full instances. Um, and you yeah. kind of just want something cheaper. And yeah, I'm just really surprised it's taken like however many years it's been, probably like almost like, you know, five to 10 years now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think Flynn and, and Deus are the biggest kind of com- quote unquote competitors in that space of trying to. Climb yeah, so the, there's projects, dude. I'm just surprised that, like, given that these the cloud companies have most of the underlying tech, that they haven't done it. I guess. Right. Yeah, I was I was trying to find I forget what I was thinking. I, you know, another another idea that popped into my head, and I wanted to run um, a really tiny instance in, in Amazon or whatever, you know, in a, a container. And uh, I forget what it was. There was some other service of Amazon that I wanted to try out or or use, and um, it still wasn't um, like cost effective to just run like a single container, you know, for a single thing, you know, like yeah. a hobby project. Mm-hmm. I mean. It depends, you know, what you want to consider cost effective, right? Like the amount of time I would spend and, and, and whatever. But, um, it's still not easy just to deploy, you know, a, a container in, in a shared environment like Heroku. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the problems, quote unquote, with, that I have with, with AWS is that you, you have to have spent a couple of years of, of understanding all these layers before, I think I, I, this is what I think is that before it actually makes any sense of like what is a, what is AWS and and what are all these services and which ones do I want to use and you know versus the log into Heroku point it at my GitHub uh, you know or you know uh, log in with my GitHub account and uh, you know and it's away right uh, it's it's so much simpler to get started uh, in that type of a model than I think starting from from scratch even with like Beanstalk right. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say Google app, Google app engine is probably, I, it's been a couple of years since I've tried it, but that was closer to yep. kind of doing it right. Um, but even, I don't think it even captured the simplicity of, of Heroku. It was, uh, it made different trade-offs, which I thought was really interesting actually. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. That, that one's a good example. Yeah. So interesting. So cool. Thanks guys. So, um, Next segment is our interview segment with uh, Mitchell. Uh, but before we jump into that, uh, I'd like to ask all my guests, uh, since uh, DevOps is a very broad topic, uh, different people have different definitions. So, Mitchell, how do you define DevOps? <laughs> so we actually have a, uh, a huge sort of page dedicated to this uh, yes. at hashicorp.com slash DevOps. But, um, I mean, I think we describe it, I describe it as... Um, uh, something that that a lot of people who have seen DevOps have seen or given DevOps talks would accept, which is that you know it is both a sort of cultural and technical movement with the primary goal um, of being able to deliver sort of business value faster um, and while being safe. That's a, that's the key part. I forgot while being safe. Mm. Um, and so I don't know. I view it as you know some people push the culture really hard. Some people push the tech really hard. Um, I view it a lot more pragmatically, like, um, uh, on a sort of case by case basis, uh, you know, d- it depends on sort of the previous culture there. Like if it's a heavily like engineering run company, um, you might just get more initial win, um, from adopting technologies first. Um, if it's more of a like process manager driven sort of, uh, thing, you may get more value out of, uh, reworking sort of how teams communicate first. Um, I think there's no, secret formula, although you could certainly try. Um, mm. But as a tools vendor primarily, I mean, I think the most common thing I see is that um, people adopt a tool, they get some pretty significant benefits right away, um, but then they sort of hit a brick wall and it's sort of like, okay, like why, what do we do next? And sometimes, and a lot of the times the answer is like, you, 
you could get a lot more value out of that tool if you just use it slightly differently and using it slightly differently usually means like you know give more people access to it um and things like that yeah that is a great definition um i I love that you emphasized uh doing things safely because that's i think that's the part that can get forgotten that it's not just about automating things because you can automate you know junk uh it's about making sure that you're improving the 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 risk profile and the and um you know the the stability of uh you know what we're you know uh, what we're trying to do as a team to deliver um so yeah that's an important part of it so uh for our listeners um i you know uh, mitchell is the uh, cto and founder of uh hashigorp and uh i uh, uh my um experiences I, i've used several of the hashicorp's uh, products uh, over the years uh, vagrant and packer um uh, and then uh, now most recently i'm using uh, terraform and vault and uh, uh i'm a big fan of kind of what you've talked about already of, of just kind of having beautiful interfaces uh you know having tools that uh, work in a very common sense way, you know, that there's no surprises, you know, about how something, you know, uh, works, uh, at least if you're understanding the concepts of the space that it's in. Um, you know, that's, I think, a, a big thing about what I like about uh, HashiCorp's doing. Um, so uh, tell me and the, the listeners uh, kind of more about, you know, the, the space that uh, you guys are in. And, uh, you know, I, I think probably Terraform seems to be taking, you know, a lot of, um, uh, your time lately, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, that seems to be a big push lately because it's it's a tool that a lot of people need who are in kind of the cloud uh, cloud provider cloud deployment um, uh, space. Yeah, yeah. So we um, yeah we started basically as the Vagrant company, uh, the You're company right. built around Vagrant, and um, I think very quickly it sort of surprised people um, by going in a bunch of of different directions. Uh, we have a service discovery tool. Um, we have a we have a cluster scheduler. We have a security tool, um, and they're all doing pretty well. I mean, I'm biased. I think they're I think they're pretty good, but um, but the download numbers also are are looking pretty good. So, I mean, uh, the core philosophy we've been trying to do uh, follow is, you know, we're trying to solve needs um, in the data in in the data center with infrastructure software uh, to do things in a more modern way while being friendly sort of to legacy software. Mm-hmm. And um, that particular uh, sort of philosophy has made us uh, really interesting, especially for um, larger companies, which is sort of our primary customer base we decided to go after after a few years. Um, you know, our customers are, pri- are really like global 2000 type companies um, because we make very, very flexible tools. Um, mm. At the same time, sort of the tools are all open source. Um, they're used by a lot of smaller to mid-sized companies, um, get millions of downloads. And I think that, you know, I hope that that's due to sort of what you said. We try to make beautiful interfaces um, that solve a real problem. So that's, you know, we're trying to have our, you know, to have our cake and eat it too. Uh, and it's hard, <laughs> but we're trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I like too is that, your tools are independent of each other, that, that there are bindings and you can use them together and, and it makes sense to use a lot of them together. But 
uh, you know, not to slight Atlassian, but I'm going to use them as an example. Their ecosystem is very tightly knit. And once you kind of get into their ecosystem, it really makes sense to stay in their ecosystem. Um, whereas I don't get that sense. I don't get that feeling using um, HashiCorp tools. Uh, is, is that something that you guys are consciously trying for? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think what you said is both a good and, and bad thing. Um, I, uh, well, that is something we're trying to do. Um, but we also do definitely want to have more value for you to, to use our things together. We just kind of haven't gotten there yet, to be honest. Um, there's some integrations. There's going to be more in the future. Like, for example, we're, we're working on something really cool around um, microservice communication sort of security. And it's going to require that you use both console and vault, for example. But if, if, if you don't yep. use both of those, then, then you can't really get it. But you get the value from them independently. Um, yeah. but, but at the same time, that was absolutely, uh, the independence between projects was absolutely a core philosophy. Um, I mean, from, from just a engineering design perspective, for example, looking at something like Vault, which is a security tool, and something like Console or Terraform, um, which is service discovery and infrastructure management, we looked at it and we're like, you know, do you want to conflate security with those two? Like, I, you know, you want to audit security tools. You want a high degree of confidence in various parts of them that you don't need in the other ones. And do you want to do those all at once? And and from an, from an engineering um, purity standpoint, you know, I don't think so. And from a user standpoint, I don't think so. I, I think the only benefit to doing them all in one is actually from like a, I mean, it's sort of like from a corporate overlord perspective. It's like, well... We have millions of console users. Let's turn them into Vault users immediately. Right, um, and we've been we've been fighting that, and, and and I'm really proud that we did them separately, and and it's worked out. Yeah, well, it, it makes sense. So like what you've described of you know where where you're headed with the you know for instance the microservices stuff that you were mentioning is uh, you know these uh, to complement you these these tools. I I'm not sure I see a clear competitor um, in. Uh, you know, the the vault or the console space as far as like, there are things that are very similar, but I can see where as you start to really use the functionality and the features that, you know, are, are there in vault, uh, for instance, um, yeah. that, that it's not that you're choosing to, to not integrate, uh, you know, external or, or um, competitor competing tools. It's just, these are the only implementations that have that that functionality. Yeah, we're we're totally not against integrating what what might be viewed as competing tools in, in our adjacent tools. Like we yeah. we we don't we that's I mean one of our things is that we integrate with everybody um, where it makes sense. So for example, like Terraform integrates with tools like Kubernetes, which which may be viewed as like competitive competitive with Nomad. Um, we have a slightly different look on a view on that, but. You know, stuff like that. Um, actually, Terraform even has like a CloudFormation resource, which um, Terraform almost directly competes with CloudFormation for AWS. So that's, right. that, that always puzzles people a little bit. But it makes sense. In, and just to use that as an example is because like if you're migrating from CloudFormation to Terraform, um, that lets you have Terraform run your CloudFormation. And so you can do a piecemeal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, for instance, um, I, I'm actually running into that right now, which is uh, I got a cloud formation template from an external mm -hmm. tool, right, to set up their infrastructure. So I'm I am not going to rewrite all of that in Terraform. Exactly. But I want Terraform to just say, go ahead and install this um, this uh, cloud formation stack. Exactly. That's yeah. you're using it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that totally makes sense. Um, so 
So how did you guys go from, you know, the Vagrant Company to what you are now? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a step. But, I mean, I remember uh, early days of Vagrant. Um, you know, that's that's sort of a, you know, a, like a developer tool. Every Joe Schmo could use, just use Vagrant. And then, you know, some of these other tools are, um, you know, I mean, I don't want to say enterprising, right? Because we just talked about how they're not. But um, you know what I mean. They're they're. They're different users. They're different users, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, how did we go from the Vagrant Company? The answer is is uh, is just a long road. I think um, it didn't happen. It, I mean, it took years, um, and and it was hard to shake off. And uh, I think you know we viewed each tool that we built as we got a lot of instant sort of eyeballs on anything new we launched, thanks to. Um, the recognition we built from Vagrant, which we're you know lucky to have. That's a very hard problem. Um, but they're different users. So when we launched Console, for example, um, a lot of Vagrant Packer users looked at it and were like, uh, I don't know what this does. I don't know why I'd use it, but it looks cool. Um, and so it just took a really long time. And, 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 and the hard part was even as we we're getting users for those things, like Press and so on continued to talk about HashiCorp as a, as a developer tools company, which is an aspect of HashiCorp, but we we really cater like today we really cater to three completely separate groups of users. We have developers, we have operators, and we have security engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not uncommon today for a security engineer to know HashiCorp very well through Vault and have no idea that we make Vagrant or that you know we have anything to do with Vagrant, which is partly a marketing problem, but also I don't view it as, as overly... I, the positive part I view about it is that they're coming in from a completely different angle. Right, um, they're just the not the time, audience for that. Yeah, and at the same time, we have people like coming into Terraform um, now instead of Vagrant. And and that was really the turning point for the company, I think, uh, was when those things started really picking up that way. But there was no magic bullet. There was no um, single step or anything. I think just over the years, more and more people figured it out slowly. Yeah, do you, do you mind going back even further and telling us kind of uh, what was the genesis of uh, Vagrant and, and kind of your history there? Yeah. What were you um, doing before Vagrant? Yeah, so, I mean, Vagrant is sort of like parts of it at, at a high level are like a very traditional, almost like Silicon Valley type story. Um, I started Vagrant from a college dorm room. Um, I was a freelance developer at the time. Uh, that did Ruby on Rails and other web stuff, um, just pretty much anything, um, right? Just made websites. And uh, I was hitting this issue where it was just taking up so much of my time that wasn't really billable um, to switch customers or clients. It was like if I had to work on one client and then fix a bug really quickly in another client's web app, it was taking so long to launch their environment because I was currently in the mode of like, run Apache and run all your databases like just all on your laptop. And um, and I just needed a solution to this because I really, the model actually in my head that I was thinking of was um, I had just switched from Windows to Mac like within the past year at that point. And I was like, where's, I, I just want like a lo- like a, a little icon on my desktop that I double click to set up everything. And it started with really basic things like just bash scripts to try to start and stop the right things. Um, it just didn't feel very good. And then and then I started looking into other stuff. I actually knew very little about virtualization at the time, but um, but I looked into that and 
And that's what ended up sticking. I had some other ideas that I never even really tried just because once I tried the virtualization bit, I was like, yeah, this is, this is going to work for me. Hmm. Cool. Building, building the tool that you wanted. That That's totally. Uh, yeah. Yep. The, that's a great story. Brian, did you uh, have any other questions? Yeah. I mean, I just, everything though. So, so how did you go? I mean, like, so I think Packer was the next, the next tool, right? So that's sort of in the same space. Um, and then Vault, I mean, you mentioned is on the other side. So was this, um, your idea or is this just some idea that, that, um, you know, somebody in your company had? Yeah. It, it's always hard to pinpoint the exact genesis of, of an idea. I think that, you know, I think they mature over time, but I mean, so Vagrant Packer, Surf Console, Terraform, uh, were all created when it was just three of us at the company. Um, so it was me, Armand, and then Jack, who's our current VP of engineering. Um, Vault and Nomad were created a little bit later. Um, I, I, I don't recall. I, 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 yeah, I don't really recall, but, you know, these are the, the, the sort of abstract idea is some, are usually think problems that me and Armand have. Um, for a while, what the product ends up turning into is usually a group effort of ideas mm. um, that sure. come together. It's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, I mean, we're we're actually working on something new right now, and it's been kind of interesting. Where, um, yeah, it started as just me and Armand got a lot of it working, and then slowly bringing in a few more people um, that have super good ideas and molding the project that way. Um, and, and a big difference now in the company in the past two years, actually, because because Vault and and uh, Vault and Nomad were kind of like this. But uh, a big difference is that we work with customers now when we're designing something new. Um, so this this new thing we're developing, for example, uh, we already have a handful of paying customers who pre-ordered it and are giving us feedback on uh, you know what problems they have, and and we try to keep it to very high level problems. Like we don't. We don't want them to tell us what they want um, because yeah. it, it comes into like a you know camel horse scenario or, 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 or a horse car like that that analogy yeah, where right. you know they they'll describe that they want a faster horse but they don't realize that you can build a car and so we try to get these high level examples but then we take those um, and slowly show them bits and pieces where it's like what if we solved it this way like how does this feel to you um, and try to get towards things and sometimes honestly they say like. This this will never work, but but we're so sure that it's sort of the right way to do it. And there's a bit of hubris in that that um, we go with it. But but a lot of the times we we compromise. Yeah, very cool. Um, having the having the tight feedback loop, customers right off the bat. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a recent luxury, but uh, very thankful to them. Yeah, and it's it's interesting also to hear that kind of your you're still in incubation mode. Uh, you know, as you're as you're um, uh, you know, as the company has grown, and like you said, 50 engineers, um, that you're still actively hands-on with, um, you know, developing uh, the new tech and the new products that you're, actually, you're creating. I, I, I actually think that's really important. Um, yeah. There's, I think that, you know, I, I I don't think there's anything, like, particularly special about me or Armand, but I do think that there is something super important about having a singular vision and... I use the word sort of visionary here very broadly. Like anyone could do, it's just anybody who has some long-term idea. And I think it's hard when you have a long-term idea to articulate that 
to where someone else understands it fully. Um, even as a company right now that's um, you know four or five years old, there's there's a lot of early employees that really get it um, and really understand deeply what HashiCorp's doing, but at the same time, uh, I think would struggle to sort of view things the same way me and Armand do. And I and again, I don't think it's because we're special in any particular way. It's just because you know when it's your idea, it I think you see it always. You see it a little bit clearer. So um, I just think it's really important for product companies um, to make sure that those original idea people remain involved in decisions because I sort of see other, you know, won't name them. I sort of see other companies in the DevOps space uh, and they come up with, they come out with new stuff and I look at it and I'm like, it's fine. It's cool. Like, okay. But when you look at it in relation to everything else, it, it feels like it's just made by a completely different person. Yeah. And, and we don't want that to happen pretty much because I think there's a lot of power in having a singular feel to everything and to feel like everything's heading in in one direction uh, I, I like to describe it sort of as, as unity um, in, in differing products and so mm. yeah we're still very opinionated about making sure that Armand and I are sort of the only people that can originally design something um, we may bring people on board very early um, especially older more experienced people in the company um, older, not by age, of course, by a, a length of time they've been at the company. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they, they've deserved that. But a lot of the initial work is still me and Armand sort of talking a lot. <laughs> awesome. I, 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 um, I'm rooting for you. I, I hope that uh, that's not something that you lose as you get bigger and bigger because I'm sure that that's going to be a struggle um, when, you know, you're going to. Uh, have to be dealing with um, managing, you know, folks and, and stuff like that. So that's awesome. Um, hey, Brian, do you uh, you have any other questions? I cannot think of anything right now. Put me on the spot. Uh, Mitch- <laughs> yeah, uh, no, sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, Mitchell, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that uh, you wanted to cover? Um, I don't think so. Not really, unless, uh, yeah, just I'm here at the the whim of whatever interests yeah. you both have. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, no, I just uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to talk to us. Um, uh, I know you're a busy guy these days. So, um, so yeah, so thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, Mitchell, where can our, our listeners find uh, more about you and what you're working on? Uh, super easy. I don't really hide much. Um, so a couple places, HashiCorp.com. Um, even if you're interested in just our open source projects, you'll find links to all those in the footer. Um, and then to find me, just uh, Mitchell H um, on on everything, pretty much, and, and that'll be me. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. Um, I too, I'm on uh, Twitter, Brian Demers, all one word. Um, so you can find me there. And I'm on Twitter as well. I'm Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. Uh, but before we go, let's leave our listeners with something to do. So this is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with something to watch, read, play, or try out some other way. Brian, what what did you want to leave our listeners with? All right. So this week um, I discovered a new tool. Uh, I shouldn't say it's a new tool. It's been around for a little while, but it's new to me. Uh, it's called JQ. So it's a um, JSON parser for your command line. So in the past, I've always done kind of silly things that felt uh, too much like write a simple Python script or, or something to parse, um, you know, some um, some JSON, you know, blob from, from you get from, you know, na- name your REST API, right? Uh, right? And I found JQ the other day because um, 
a coworker of mine is 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 always promoting HTTP Pi, HTTP Pi, but the command line tool is HTTP, which is it's a terrible name, um, <laughs> but it's a great tool. Uh, and yep. he's always harping how great it is. And I don't necessarily think it's like a a scriptable like replacement tool for something like curl. Um, yeah. But as far as I want to hit this this API really quick, I want to get my response. I want to see everything, and I want to color code it uh, in my command line. It's great. Um, yeah. So I was like, well, how do I parse this stuff out? You know, do I do some stupid uh, said awk thing, or do I just uh, you know what's the easiest way? Um, so this is trivial. It took me you know three minutes to to find it, and another thirty seconds to learn how to use it and check it out. It's called JQ. It's it's all native. It's a C application tiny yeah um check it out yeah i i can actually also recommend it i've i've used this in the past as well i'm, I'm a big fan of it for that exact reason if you are used to like curling something uh, you know or catting something and then using awk and said uh this is like a command line junkie unix command line junkie stream for um uh, parsing json uh, yeah absolutely I, I i wish i would have found it you know years ago because i feel so stupid with the the amount of 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 nasty workarounds that I've had, and uh, I, you know, it never dawned on me just that someone would have this, you know, out of the box for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, it's a great tool. Uh, very cool. Uh, so uh, I'm definitely uh, I use that um, still. It's one of my tools that I install um, right off the bat uh, because I'm still doing JSON and, and web stuff. Uh, Mitchell, uh, what did you bring our listeners? Um, so I didn't. Well, I could give some concrete resources, but I sort of brought. Um, a challenge, so to speak. Um, cool. One one skill set I've been surprised to find extremely valuable um, over the years uh, that I didn't originally think would be super valuable is uh, is compilers. And so mm. I, you know, one of the things I try to encourage even the junior sort of engineers at HashiCorp, but anyone I talk to to, to do because it's fun and it removes a lot of the magic um, from computers that I think even engineers have is to, to learn how to write uh, a compiler. And there's a lot of resources out there. There's there's one that's really good. There's a book called uh, Writing an Interpreter in Go, um, which will help you write a toy language in Go. Um, it's a good book, but I will say that like it's it's sort of the most naive way to write an interpreter, which is totally fine. you got to start that way. Right. Um, other, other challenges sort of I recommend is uh, write a JSON parser. JSON's really, really easy to parse. Um, so write a JSON parser. Um, write, and then the sort of third thing, once you graduate from there, uh, which I think exercises a lot of really useful skills uh, and understanding is to write um, a regular expression engine. Uh, and obviously you're not trying to compete with like Perl or anything, but just, just write right. something that takes in regular expressions uh, and says mash or not. Um, that'll teach you, if you know how to write, a, you'll need to have compiler knowledge usually to write that, um, and then you'll have to learn about sort of um, uh, uh, what am I? Uh, um, what am I thinking? Of? Uh, finite automata to do the the state to do the regular expressions, and those are pretty cool. And I and I just I don't know. Over the years, I've found that so useful in unexpected ways. So that's what I say. Yeah, that is awesome advice. Uh, one of my favorite um, classes that I ever took was uh, compiler uh, theory, and and we built a compiler from scratch, um, and. It, like you said, it took away the magic of, you know, how, how am I turning this, this text file into ones and zeros that are running, that's running on a, uh, uh, on a CPU. So. so on the flip side, 
uh, everyone has horror stories. Uh, so one of my early horror stories of, of my career, I started maintaining this Java application, um, which was probably the first uh, Java application that a compiler person, you know, someone who had deep knowledge of compilers, uh, worked on. So it was basically going from a compiler to, you know, object-oriented Java. And um, I still have nightmares at night about some of that code. So I think going the other way is probably yeah. a lot more beneficial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's um, it's just it a different way of thinking. Used. So, so you know, one's not better than the other. It's just different, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's it's remove my the reason I like it is exactly what Mitchell said. It's just it removes a lot of the magic and kind of what we do. Uh, and so, actually, dovetailing with that, um, I uh, the thing that I wanted to talk about is reconfigure.io, which is um, a new service that's built on top of um, uh, the FPGA um, instances on AWS, so the the field programmable gate array. So uh, in college, the the things that I found most useful in my career, uh, you know, or some some of the things I really enjoyed were this compiler theory class and uh, doing a computer engineering um, course where we actually built a CPU and, and all the components from scratch. And one of the things that we used during that was a, a field programmable field programmable gate array. Sorry, that's going to be a mouthful, um, which is basically programmable hardware. It allows you to kind of take a circuit diagram um, and, uh, you know, write it out to uh, a chip. Um, and so AWS now supports having this, um, you know, in... Uh, uh, in AWS, uh, reconfigure.io is about taking that and turning that into a platform as a service so that you can basically take kind of custom algorithms. You know, the kind of, it's the same idea if, if you're familiar with the idea of like OpenCL and running, um, kind of general purpose algorithms on a GPU because that's customized hardware. Well, this is the idea is like, what if you could write the customized hardware yourself um, and and uh, that's what this service is so I, I'm recommending I have not actually done this myself yet but I recommend people check out reconfigure.io and I, I think that actually dovetails pretty nicely um, uh, through pure happenstance with uh, what Mitchell is, is recommending this week that's very cool I, I hadn't seen this so this this is really interesting it, it brings back all of the uh, the digital classes I had and I had to yes. you know, in college and and whatnot so that's that's off to check this out well, this wraps up another episode. Uh, don't forget to check us out at our website, codemonkey.fm. Uh, we're on Slack. We're on Reddit. Uh, and you can leave us feedback at feedback at codemonkey.fm. Thanks. And um, hey, if you like this episode, please do us uh, a favor and review us on your favorite podcast finder of choice, be it what is now called Apple podcasts not itunes uh as of this week uh google play overcast or uh another uh and that would really help us get heard by more people so uh thanks again uh mitchell for joining us and uh, we'll see you next week thanks for having me